Good morning. Let's get in and pray. Ask the Lord to bless our time this morning as we look at Jude. And we'll get into our text. Father, we are so grateful to come together as a representation of your body here locally in Tomball Bible Church. We ask for wisdom. Or your Proverbs say to seek discernment, Father, and we want to see that, want to have that as we look at these verses here in Jude. We ask that we would be not hearers who delude themselves, but faithful doers of your word. And we know that that is empowered by your spirit within us for your glory alone. Give us eyes to see these truths this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we've all been told before, to do grand things, but been given no instruction. We've all had that experience, right? You probably had a teacher like that. You definitely had a coach like that. And you probably maybe have a boss like that right now, where you get these commands with no hands. Here, do this impossible thing and just kind of figure it out. We've all experienced that before. When I was a kid playing baseball, the tall, skinny, ugly, left-handed kid, you automatically get put at first base. There's no other option for you. You can't go anywhere else. They just go over there, and then they would just tell me, hey, don't let a good ball get past you. I'm like, okay, which glove does the hand go on? I don't know anything. And they're just like, don't let it get past you. Don't let it get past you. And I don't know. And then when it gets past me, they yell at me. And I'm like, what do I do? Until finally, I'm 11 years old, and Hal Harkey comes by. And Hal Harkey, he was the coach. His, his kid was a shortstop, so he just volunteered. He's a really godly man, and he just went to be with the Lord rather recently. And uh, he was the coach who wore those small coaching shorts that were cut-off baseball pants with a double-snap button, and he would fold his glove over and stick it in his pants right there. I'll never forget that. And he was tall, <laughs> left-handed, and ugly, just like me. And so he came over and found me, and, and, and he was just as a volunteer dad, he showed me how to play first base. He said, this is how you stand on the bag when the ball's coming. Wait until this happens. And when it's in the dirt, you want to move like this. And when it's a pot fly in foul territory, you have an open hand over here so you can feel the fence because you're left-handed. And I was like, oh, I'm special. And he told me all these things. And he finally taught me how to do what I've been yelled at to do. He gave me hands to do that. And that is what Jew is going to do this morning. In these four verses, we've been told in verses three and four, hey, you have to contend for the faith. And then he spent the next 14 verses saying, this is who you contend against. This is what they look like. But you still don't know how until here. 20 through 23 is Jude's how. So normally when you write a sermon out, you read it, you study it, and then you conclude, you extricate an application at the end. This entire passage is all application. So don't wait for the end. Be writing it down as we go, because Jude is only application in 21 or 20 through 23. So let's look at this text together. Before we do, one commentator said this. I want to give this as a precursor before we get in. He said to contend for the faith when it is under attack means more than opposing false teachers with words. It involves a positive life faithful to the gospel. And that's true because you can't peddle on applied truth because nobody is buying it. So we have to apply these truths. So in verse 20, he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. That first phrase, but you, beloved, we can't forget that who is Jude writing to? He's writing to Christians too often and dangerously. We assume the salvation of many or we, we treat it as a category that doesn't even need to be thought about. If you show up to a Christian gathering, you're a Christian, so I'm not going to bring that to you. But Jude is very clear as to who he is writing to. These are Christians. 
This is a Christian directive because you can't expect a dead person to act alive, right? If my heart is stone, I'm not alive. But if God takes it out and gives me a heart of flesh, then I have been regenerated and I should be expected then to contend for the faith. So Jude is intentionally writing to Christians. We would it behoove us to remember that. So he goes on, verse 20. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. The first action point that we get from Jude in this contention for the faith is personal. But you, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. This is nothing more than personal devotion to the Lord. Prayer and Bible alone with you and God. That's what this is. That's what the first directive is for us to the how of contending for the faith. This is Christian maturity. It's called sanctification theologically. This is the building up into the faith. This is looking more like Christ, our regular devotion to the Lord. Because Paul, when he's talking about the same thing in Acts 20, I've read that one several times where the wolves will come in when I leave and and even people will rise up in your own congregation. In that same breath to those elders, he says this in Acts 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul says the same thing, that the word of grace will build you up. So we engage in this fight because you've got two problems when you get converted. You're ignorant and you have sin and you still do, right? No, nobody's amen. Like we get it. When I get saved, I don't know everything. You get saved and you knew enough to get saved that I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is a great savior. I know that. I submit myself to his lordship in all areas. But other than that, I don't know anything. How many books in the Bible? I don't know. It looks like one. I mean, you don't, you don't know anything. You don't know how do, how do I be a Christian man, a Christian woman? I don't know how to be, what's a Christian marriage look like? What does Christian parenting look like? How do I be a Christian as a teenager? I don't know any of that stuff right when I get saved. So I'm ignorant of that stuff. And there's an element of us that we will be ignorant until the end, until we're in glory. First Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says that we look now at the truth dimly, like in a dirty mirror. We don't see it fully and clearly, but we will in glory. We will not be confused or ignorant of anything on the other side of the Jordan in heaven. So that problem is going to get resolved. And our sin problem, we've been freed from the power and the penalty of sin. That Jesus takes that away. No longer a slave and I'm no longer at risk of suffering the penalty of sin. But I'm not freed from the presence of sin. Right? We, we know that. Anybody who's married, we know that. <laughs> we got it. I'm very aware of my own sin. So we have that. And so this is the Christian's lifelong problem. That I don't look enough like Jesus today. I'm not Christ-like enough today. And the only reason why is sin. Sin is what's keeping me from looking like Christ. That's the, the Christian life is the daily struggle with sin. And this is a struggle. It is not a beatdown. Before Christ, it's a beatdown. And you have to be slave to it. Romans 6 says, I'm freed from sin and enslaved to God. So it's a struggle, and that struggle happens between you and God in the quiet over a Bible and prayer. This is what we call a quiet time, a daily devotion time. There is no other way to be built up outside of the Bible. So what we do in that point 
is incredibly important. Tommy Nelson, the pastor in Denton Bible, had a big influence on me. He says it like this. He says, what you are in public will be what you were in private. What you are in public will be what you were in private. That there's no other way around that. And this discipline of personal Bible study will bring you no accolades. It will bring you no applause. If you go feed the homeless, if you go on a mission trip to Uganda, and then you take pictures and put it on Instagram, then you will get praise and you will get applause. That's not denigrating any of those actions. There are plenty of things that we can do for the glory of God that will receive laud from our peers. But this, you'll get no praise for because sadly and shamefully to the church, nobody's going around asking you, hey, did you meet with the Lord today? How was your, how was your quiet time today? What did God show you this morning as you were, or this evening or whenever you have your time? Nobody's checking in on that. We should be. And if you're in a one-on-one discipleship relationship, you better be checking in on those things. But this brings no applause, but it is absolutely critical. Discipline in our life. The most significant influences in my life have all been men that this was a priority for them, starting with my own dad and continuing with my own dad today. Wake up early on a school day, wake up late on a Saturday, and my dad is in the corner with his light in his chair reading his Bible. I was completely clear on what was instructing my own father. And as he discipled me as his son, then I go off from his home and I get discipled by a guy named Boyd Brigman. And he, his emphasis is getting guys into the word and being them committed to daily quiet times. That's where he starts. And then I go from there and I get discipled by a guy named Cameron Norvell. And that guy is a tedious, meticulous student of the Bible. He doesn't let anything go. Don't let any word go. He chases it all down. One time we were in a Bible study and he, he dropped some profound truth on us from scripture. And then the other guy, another older guy in our Bible study goes, oh man, seminary. Because he did go to seminary. And then Cameron quickly turns around and goes, no, quiet time. He made it very clear because seminary, we need to debunk a little bit of this. You don't go in there, an imbecile, and come out a spiritual genius. It's not a factory that just makes mature people. The men that we admire that have gone to seminary, they went in with that same character, commitment, devotion, and hunger for God's word, and they just came out a little smarter and a little more resourced. Because you can't coach hustle. That's what the Christian life boils down to is hustle. It's not dependent upon brains, brilliance, or talent. It's hustle. My dad used to always tell me as a kid, you can't control your talent, but you can always control how much you hustle. That meant a lot when I was trying to guard in basketball, some guy who's 6'11". I can't control it. I'm only six foot one, but I can hustle. That's the only thing I have control over. And Christians, that's what we do. That's what the life is. It's hustle. That's what we're going to do with this. So Christian maturity and sanctification process, it's not complicated, but it is hard work. The building yourselves up in your most holy faith is hard work. And we always want a shortcut to building ourselves up in the most Holy faith. We, we want a shortcut. And the charismatic movement gives you a shortcut. The allure of it is a shortcut. Here is the mirage of spiritual maturity with little to no effort. Here's the miracle diet pill. You don't have to run, exercise, change your diet. Just eat this pill and you'll be skinny and beautiful. Or uh, the get rich quick scheme for spiritual growth. Because getting in shape physically is not complicated, right? Eat less, run more, and do that for a long time. There it is. I'm a personal trainer now. It's, it's not complicated, but it's hard 
to do that every single day. And we don't want to put in that hard work. What I'd rather do is eat candy and just get an electronic shocker on my abs and watch TV. I'd go through all that to get the body that I want. But you don't get it that way. It comes through hard work. The same thing is the Christian life, that you can be slain in the spirit. You can babble in a secret prayer language. All you want, have some amazing experience where you're on cloud nine. And tomorrow you're going to wake up a greedy, lustful, gossiping, angry person. Because you ha- you're just going to wake up a sinner because you didn't do anything towards purging that sin from your life. You just had an experience. And experiences aren't bad, but they are not substantive. So we put in the hard work. That's why he uses construction language, building yourselves up. And and Peter uses that in 1 Peter, that we are living stones being built up into a house of God. Paul uses that language in Ephesians 2, that we are stones being built up into a most holy temple of which Jesus is the cornerstone or the foundation of. That construction language is replete throughout Scripture. And the building, that word in the Greek, it signifies continuing to build a structure that is in the process of being erected. So we don't separate this process from, sanct- from salvation. Sanctification and justification go together. They are intrinsically united. God starts it. What he started in you, he will be apt to finish it. But we engage in it. We are supposed to engage in the building up. That's the first step. The essential first step in contending for the faith. But you need not enter the arena of contending for the faith if you are unwilling to engage in the building up of yourselves in your most holy faith. That when that happened for me, uh, the massive turn in my life for that moment was when I was doing college ministry and there was these street preachers on campus. They just come to college campuses and just yell insanities at you. And uh, they, were, they had their Bible and their King James only because that's what the Lord spoke in. And, uh, and he was one of those guys who curled his Bible over. That just drives me crazy. If you're a Bible curler, God bless you. But man, he just would like crank it over and he was showing me, you got to mortify your sin. And, and, I, and the point he was making, I knew that he was wrong, but I couldn't figure out where to go. I didn't know where to go. So I went back to the guy who was discipling me. I said, Cameron, teach me Romans. I don't know all about it, but I know it's important to teach it to me because I need to know it. And that's all discipleship process is, is you, I don't know something, you know it, teach me. So if there, if there is a, any question in your mind about your ability to handle the Bible and you want to know more, ask somebody. That's the hardest step in discipleship is admitting what you don't know. But when you make that step, when I've made that step, God is so faithful to bring understanding and discernment and grasp of his word because he wants to be known. And we don't engage in this building up of ourselves and our most holy faith on our own. Look at the verse as it continues. In verse 20, it says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. This pursuit of building myself up as the first step to being able to contend is not done under my own power. And it's not done according to my own agenda that I am, am urged am obligated to find where is the will of God. That's, that's what this prayer means. That's what it says in praying in the Holy Spirit. We pursue and we pray according to the Holy Spirit's agenda. The Holy Spirit as fully God. This is God's agenda. See, unlike the false teachers, unlike the apostates that Jude was talking about in the previous 14 verses, we aren't seeking to be led by self 
But by God, we have but one guide. And he has chosen to indwell us in the third person of his trinity that we call the Holy Spirit. So we pursue that end. This is not a call to ecstatic, mindless babbling and calling it prayer. This is call of us simply to find where is obedience to God? Where is obedience to the Spirit? Let me pray in that direction. Let me move in that direction. The same can be said of Jesus. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit has this unique connection to Christian prayer. In Romans 8, 26, we get told, you don't even know how to pray. And the Holy Spirit is just going to do it for you in a, in a version. Look at Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the, Son, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't know about you, but there's oftentimes where I get into prayer and I'm like, I don't even know what to say, God. There's this issue, there's this problem, there's this crossroads, there's this whatever. I don't know. I know that I want your best, but I don't even know what direction that could be. Or I start saying something that I think that I'm right and my heart's right, but my words are all wrong. Like Abraham, when he's praying to save Lot. He starts with 100 and goes to 50 and goes down, but really he just wanted Lot saved. So God's interpreting, the Holy Spirit's interpreting that prayer, interceding for us on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. Praise God that he's brought that there. And for us ignorant worms, as Isaac Watts calls us in that great hymn, that we're being interceded for by the Holy Spirit. He's praying for us. So Jude's admonishing us to pursue the Spirit's will in our prayers. And we don't know what to pray for, but in this fight for the faith, the Holy Spirit surely does. He surely knows what we need and how we need to pursue and engage in this fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Calvin says it like this, that Jude teaches us that no one can pray as he ought without having the spirit as his guide. And that is true. So moving on in verse 21, we got the next initiative. We got to keep ourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Now that sounds contrary to what we read in verse 1. And then what we will read in verse 24, right? Because I thought, wait a minute, I keep myself in the love of God. I thought Jesus was doing that in verse one. I thought I, I was being kept. Well, when we see any tension in scripture as Bible students, you should get excited because that means there's something that you don't know and God just made it clear to you because you know one half, but you don't know the other. And the tension, the problem does not lie in the Bible being contradictory. The problem lies in our own ignorance. So we get excited when we see a contradiction. How are you going to resolve this, God? Let's take what is clear to explain the unclear. So look at verse one of Jude. And we know from that, that Christians are indeed beloved in God, the father. And we know from verse one of Jude, that Jesus will keep us, that we are kept for Jesus Christ. Those two are very clear. Now, what we need to do, and in Bible study, the more I do this, the more I realize that Bible study, effective Bible study, is not about having all the right answers. It's about learning how to ask the right questions. So let's ask the text this question. Can I, as a true Christian, stray away from what God and his infinite love would desire for me? Is that possible? Ask it another way. Do I bear any responsibility in continuing in the love of God? Do I? We have a full Bible, so we can go to John 15, verse 9 and 10, to answer that question. This is Jesus 
talking with his disciples in the upper room. He says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus's admonition to us is that you need to abide in God's love. And if he's admonishing us in that way, and that means it's possible for me to not abide. So we do have an obligation. So God's work in the preservation of his elect does not negate the responsibility of believers. That just because we know that he is sovereign and mighty to save doesn't mean, oh, I just do nothing now and God's just going to do it all. No, scripture is full of that. If that were the case, then why would Paul have ever written one single letter? Well, if they really say, they'll just, they'll just figure it out. But he wrote to the Corinthians. He's like, what are you doing getting drunk at communion? To the Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he instructs them because they need to be abiding in the love of God. We can Step out of that. John MacArthur explained it like this. All this verse means is to remain in the place of obedience where God's love is poured out on his children, as opposed to being disobedient and incurring his chastening, not his wrath, but his chastening. So we can do that. So we have an obligation to do that. And it's not, it is not contradictory, but it is harmonious that we, we don't negate one for the other, that they exist in harmony in Scripture. So in verse 21, he gives another admonition. This is the third one for us to do as we engage in the fight. He says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. One thing that is absolutely critical but is sorely undertaught in the church as we engage in the Christian life is the hope of heaven. What we need to do in this fight is keep our eyes on the prize that Jesus is coming back. We, we need to know that, that expectantly waiting for the Savior, whether you die and go see him or he comes now and takes us, that keeps our heads on straight. That keeps us focused on the right things. That there will come a day when we no longer have to wage this war. That day is coming. Amen. That we, that brings hope that Jesus is just going to come and end the war. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be gone forever. The believers and believers who have lived under real persecution, to, man, to them, this command is so sweet and so nourishing. Just even look at the spirituals that, that slaves wrote in the, in the antebellum South. They're all about heaven, right? Swing low, sweet chariots coming forth to carry me home. I looked over Jordan and what did I see coming to carry me home into the promised land and tell everybody else when you get there that I'm coming, that there's a hope of glory to those who are persecuted in other areas of the world. They long for heaven, but in America, it is negligible because we are fat and we are comfortable. And we are so concerned about our best life now that we are unconcerned about the ultimate glory and restoration and regeneration of the universe. But Jude's saying, you've got to be looking that we've got to be doing that. We've got to take communion in remembrance of Jesus and doing that until he comes. It's a sign and a symbol for us to look forward to his coming. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11. We, we have to engage in this because if we are truly hoping for heaven, we are not consumed with the decay of our inherently terminal institutions. 
if we are truly longing for glory, then we aren't trying to make everything awesome right now. That our eyes are on souls and our hope is for glory, not for restoring inherently terminal institutions. That's, that's what this does for us. So the Holy Spirit inspired Jude to write this, I believe, for a, a one reason being at least because he knows that we will so easily succumb to short-sightedness. That if it's not happening now, I don't care. If it's not happening now, that I'm not worried about it. That we would even utter the phrase, man, I hope Jesus doesn't come back or I hope I don't die before I get to do X, Y, or Z, is, is an utter offense to God. There's something better than heaven and I want it before I have to go there. That's not what the church has believed for millennia. But for the past 250 years, we sure have. So Jude is admonishing us towards this and looking to that because true warriors for the truth, this is so sweet to them to know, like Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter two, verse four, that there is a day coming where we will beat our swords into plowshares and we will turn our spears into pruning hooks. That there will become a day we will no longer need weapons of war. That, that that what we have as weapons of war will turn into, into instruments of growth and instruments of life. That that day is coming and we long for that. Because if you don't long for heaven, your life will be miserable. Your, your perspective will be dismal and you will quit the fight. If you don't long for heaven, you will quit the fight because it looks like, and we're told it looks like in scripture that Satan is winning. But if we long for heaven, then we know, we know this fight's worth engaging in, even though it feels like I'm just going to get pummeled. Because we're not. We're longing for that moment. We're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so now what Jude does is he's instructed us in this. And so often we want to skip to these next commands. But we can't do these. We can't engage with people until we've been shored up and we've been trained and equipped. Correct? Like that's how any military would work, any team would work. You have training before the battle. So you've got to build yourselves up in your faith, praying in the, according to the Holy Spirit, waiting on the mercy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And then we've got to move towards people. So Jude in 22 and 23, there's three layers of people, all with a greater involvement with error. And we're told on how to interact with them. And we do that on the basis of what we've been talking about. And we have to engage in this because they're going to become the battleground. Eventually, we're going to ranting and raving against false teaching is not going to be enough. We say all of that stuff, but eventually people are going to get infected by it. And we're going to have to move towards them. They are going to become the battleground, not chat rooms. The local church is where we engage in this. Local church meaning us and going out into our community and engaging in this and touching in our families and friends. Because the Christian life is not golf. It's not golf for a lot of reasons, but it's also not golf because golf is solitary and your score depends on you. It's Christian life is team rowing. That if somebody on the golf course is going crazy on hole 18 and you're on hole seven, doesn't matter. But if somebody in your boat's rowing the other direction, we got problems. <laughs> we have to address that. We move towards that person. We don't go, hey, bro, you do you. We got to move towards that guy, towards that girl. And that's what... Jews going to admonish us in. In Proverbs 24, 11, admonish us in that also. It says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Because the church, we are not Darwinian. We don't shoot our wounded. 
We don't cast out our confused. We move towards them. So look at verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Mercy on those who doubt. This is the first level. This is a very initial, very kind of primary involvement with error. Have mercy on those. Go towards those people. When I was leading a Bible study one time with college kids, there was a guy who came and he was relatively new. This was during the summertime. And we, I didn't really know him that well, but I got to know him over the few weeks. And then one day I get a call from a guy named Tyler Rosas, who's actually Tom and Ramonda's son-in-law now and the youth pastor at Northwest Bible Church. And uh, we were leading, co-leading this Bible study and I was discipling him. And he calls me and he says, hey, did you see what Barrett posted on Facebook? I was like, oh, Facebook. You mean that cesspool of indiscretion? No, I did not see what he posted on there. So I went and checked it and he just posted plain as day, I'm gay and a Christian. And I was like, all right, Barrett, let's, what are we going to do here? And so Tyler and I, we go, we meet him at Whataburger where all righteousness is hashed out. And we go to Whataburger and we meet with him and we're going to talk about what, I was like, Barrett, what did you mean by that? And, and through the conversation, what we discovered is that Barrett had gone to ministry after ministry, after church, after church, and he would get comfortable, get to know people and then say, hey, I struggle with this. He didn't know how to word it very well. But what he should have said is, hey, I struggle with same-sex attraction. But he would just say, he was just so uninformed and so influenced by the world. He'd just say, hey, I'm gay. Can you help me? And they'd be like, oh, no, icky. And they, just would, they would kick him out. Out of Bible studies, out of small groups, out of places, and nobody would help him. This was a desperate cry for help. But the way that he said it, and in the public way that he said it, people were going to flock to him and say, that's okay. Those two things go together. Those two things are not contradictory. But praise the Lord that he brought him in our Bible study because we were just like, no, Barrett, that's not who you are. And he was like, I know, I want to fight this. And we said, let's lock arms and do it. You stay with us and we'll lock arms and we'll fight this together. We'll hold you accountable for that just like you hold us accountable for our sin because we can't cast him out. It would been really easy to be like, we'll never come back to my Bible study then, Barrett, to just cast him out. But we move, we have mercy on those who are doubting. And he was doubting. And the next category of person in verse 23, look at it. <clears throat> he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Save others by snatching them. These are the people who are dangerously close to hell. You, by all intents and purposes and your observations, it looks like they are teetering with an ideology that is unbiblical and that is heretical. And if I don't move towards them, I, I don't, I'm never completely sure of somebody else's salvation and this looks like they're on the line. I mean, they, they could be easily swayed by this. And so you, you snatch them, snatching them out of the fire. Snatching is Greek word harpazo, which means forcefully seizing, yanking out of this. John Calvin, the, the reformer, explained it like this. He said, um, when there is a danger of fire, we hesitate not to snatch away violently whom we desire to save for it would not be enough to beckon with the finger or kindly to stretch forth the hand so as also also the salvation of some ought to be cared for because they will not come to God except when rudely drawn. And there was a guy in my Bible study afterwards. Case in point, I'm trying to just warn you, don't ever be in my Bible study because things are gonna happen. But I had another Bible study and this guy, his name, was, his name was Jeremiah. He looked a lot like Reggie Carrington, like he's got double X shirts, but the sleeves are still way too tight because he's just yoked up, right? He's just a big guy. Like, they don't make shirts for those guys. And, and Jeremiah would come, but he was so meek and he was so mild and he was so quiet and passive. And 
he was in my Bible study. We got to know him over a little while. And then I, uh, he started, I was like, hey, where are you going to church? And uh, he goes, I'm going to church, uh, you know, kind of over across from campus, that place next to the, uh, the Jewish uh, Hillel Center, the student center. And I was thinking like, man, how, there's not a church over there. And he's like, yeah, it's just kind of right across the, uh, the side street from, from the Hillel Center. And I was like, oh, that's a Mormon tabernacle. That ain't a church. And so I started talking to him. I was like, what happened, Jeremiah? You've been in my Bible study for all this time. And he said, well, he just kind of came and knocked on my door in my dorm room. And I invited him in and they were talking to me. And they said they'd pick me up, bring me to church. And so I was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. And, and he, was so, he was so socially awkward and he was so introverted that people moving towards him just sounded good. And he was so immature in his faith. And if he was a believer at that point at all, that he was like, yeah, that sounds like what I've heard and what I, what I think I believe and and he was going with him. I was like, Jeremiah, no. And he had all these pamphlets. And I was like, we're throwing them away now. Open your backpack. And we just dumped that sucker out into the trash can right then. Because he needed to be snatched. Not just like, hey, here's some things to think about, man. Hey, consider these truths. They say that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. And that the Trinity is not all three in one. And that you can be your own God of your own planet. And consider some of these truths. I was like, no, they are lying. And they are false. And they are, they are heretical you're not going there anymore. He's like, okay, I'm picking you up for church. Okay. I was like, yeah. But he, he needed to be snatched. He needed to be rudely drawn, not just like rolled in disgust. I can't believe you'd be so stupid to go there. I you've been in my Bible study for four weeks, man. You should have known by now. Like, that's how good I am. You know, we move towards those guys. We, we have mercy on them and snatch them from the fire. And then the last group is the group we approach with the most trepidation, with the most wariness. In verse 23, to save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This group deserves our most heightened alert. These are people who are very involved with error. They may have already bought hook, line, and sinker into a false gospel of any variety. And they're very involved in that. And so they, they uh, Jude gives that caveat, you go to them with fear. Fear, not like, oh, you're gonna hurt me, but just like wariness with trepidation because we're not so arrogant to think that the ideologies that deceive friends and family and others, we're invulnerable to. I'm somehow smarter and better and above that. It won't, it won't affect me. We, we are, we're wary of that because Satan's not called a lion that's prowling for nothing. So we move towards them. We have mercy on them. Surely they're worthy of our mercy. But we go towards them um, warily because we're not invulnerable. We're not so impervious to be deceived. Our salvation's not on the line if you're truly a believer, but you could pass on deceptive words unknowingly. I mean, we, so we walk gingerly in this. And, and being a campus ministry, it, we go out and share the gospel twice a week, or once or twice a week every, you know, for several hours and every time we'd be out there, there were always Mormons out there too, walking around sharing the gospel. And so I'm, I'm the young buck and I ask my guy, the guy who's discipling me, he's the director of the ministry, Cameron, what if I just went to them and just kind of went, you know, just got them, you know? I don't know what I was gonna do, but I was like, you're, you're poaching our people. Like you're, you're fishing in our pond. I was just kind of, you know, like this ownership of the whole campus. And he, and he was like, you know, I don't think it's very wise to go to them. I don't think that, I think that's probably foolish because they are committed in that. And they're skilled in their argumentations and in the way that they go, like their their following is not large for nothing. That they're they're not fools. And those who are truly 
deeply involved in error, whatever it may be, are also reading our book. And so you, we move. So when people are like, oh, I'm going to go and invite those Mormons into my door, I'm going to do this. I'm like, I wouldn't do that. Like, well, I'm going to keep them from going to all my neighbors. Like, well, why don't you just go to all your neighbors after they come through? What a perfect opportunity. Hey, they come to your door. They came to my door too. Here's let me tell you why they're liars. I did that one day actually on campus. I just followed them around and picked up every person that they left off and said, hey, those two guys before, they were lying to you. Do you want to know the truth? What did they give you? Can I throw that away for you? Thank you. And throw it away. <laughs> and I, and they get, most of them let me throw it away. And I had some interesting conversations with people. They were like, well, yeah, it sounded kind of similar to what I kind of grown up with. And, you know, this kind of this nominal Christianity. I was like, well, here's why it's not the truth. Here's why it's not. And this is, let me give you a Bible. I took this from the Gideons. I'm going to give it to you. Here's this Gideon's Bible. Read this. Look at these verses and have those follow-ups. Because me, me tangoing with somebody who's committed their entire life to that lifestyle is, is going to be... It's not impossible because the Lord is sovereign over all things and he can remove the blinders from anybody's eyes. But we move with fear in that. We're wary of that. We're not so, well, I got Jesus. I'm just going to bully him out. I'm gonna do, well, no, we move with fear towards those people. They're worthy of our mercy, but not of our bravado, what Jane, or what Jude is saying here. So we, we move towards them. We got to keep our heads on a swivel. My football coach used to say, you can't stand around counting your change or you're going to get clocked. You young kids, money used to come in the shape of circles and rectangles. They weren't just numbers on a screen and you could count it physically. Like one, two, three, four, and that community did it for you. So if you did that in football, you were going to get knocked out if you're standing around not paying attention. So this is, you've got to keep your head on a swivel in these kind of moments. We, we walk with a little more trepidation is what Jude is reminding us to. And the reason why is because their talk spreads like gangrene. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.7, and gangrene can't be healed gangrene can just be cut off. So, so we walk very fearfully. We exercise the utmost caution, lest we become stained, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We don't want that. So this is Jude's commitment to us to engage in the fight. This is how you do it. Personal development, praying in the Holy Spirit, looking for glory and moving towards those, having mercy on them. So let's heed Jude's words of instruction as to how we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Father, we thank you so much for the truth revealed to us in your Bible. We thank you for giving us wisdom. We thank you for your, your love and mercy that knows no bounds and that endures forever. That we would still have mercy on some who doubt and that you would tell us, snatch them from the flames. That, that we're involved in that, Father, that is, is beyond humbling, but also very harrowing. That the, the Christian life comes with responsibility, Father. Let that not be lost on us as we, as we see in Jude this morning. And we thank you that we don't do this by our own power or muster it from our own brilliance or our own talent, but that you have given us all power that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and lo, he is with us even to the end of the age. And as Paul, we strive not according to our own might, but according to your power that works mightily within us. We thank you for that, Father. Thank you for not giving us an impossible task with no instruction, that you didn't give us commands with no hands, that you gave us your book, you've indwelt us by your spirit, and you have saved us by your Son. Let us boldly go forth with that message to the nations. In Christ's name, 
Amen.